John chapter 6, I'll be reading verse 34 through 59, and we'll be looking at the same verses, but pulling out another wonderful truth. So picking it up in verse 34, we have, And they said unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. Speaking of the bread of heaven. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. But I say unto you, that ye also have seen me, and believe not. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I am come down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that every one which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. The Jews then murmured at him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he saith, I came down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said unto them, Murmur not amongst yourself, no man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Every man therefore that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh to me. Not that any man hath seen the Father, save he which is of God, he hath seen the Father. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat men in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore strove amongst themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whosoever eateth my flesh, and drinketh my blood, hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh, and drinketh my blood, dwelleth in me, and I in him." As the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. These things saith he in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Um, This morning what I want to talk about is the doctrine of eternal Security, because there are lots of things in this world which seem to frighten us and bring us, uh, cause us to question um, whether or not we might lose our salvation or how this thing's going to play itself out in our lives. How are things going to end for us? But the doctrine of eternal security is written all over this section of Scripture, and these are very clear, objective statements of the Lord. Some of them I'm going to quote um, as we go through this, but as I read through it again, I, I probably saw about three or four more verses which speak of the eternality of our salvation. After I talk about some objective statements, I'm going to talk about or or set before us some of the saints that have gone before us, and using them as examples, we can appreciate what the Lord will 
uh, has in store for us. And then I want to talk a little bit about assurance of salvation, the fact that you might know that you have eternal life. So in the context of eternal security or the security of our salvation, I think we all appreciate or should appreciate at this point that our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is an exclusive work of God and that no man should ever look to themselves to affirm their justification before God. So without discussing at this point, either the depravity of man or the work of Christ on the cross on behalf of man, we have set before us here in John chapter 6 several objective statements of God affirming the finality and the eternality, the eternal security, the eternal nature of our salvation. But before I look at those, I want you to consider something that is written in Titus chapter 1. In Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, we read a very interesting statement, which we will see goes all the way back to Genesis. In Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, we read, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth, which is after godliness, verse 2, and hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began, but hath in due time manifested his word through preaching, which is committed unto me according to the commandment of God our Savior. There's two important points I want to pick out of this section here. One, that God cannot lie. And two, that God promised eternal life before the world began. Given these two truths, we ask ourselves, within what entity and to whom was the promise made? That was made before the world began. Was it not within the Godhead himself, between the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost? In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, a verse we've looked at many times because it sets the purpose statement of God right in the beginning of the Bible, In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, we read, And God said, Let us, that would be the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Whereas God is eternal, so too will be those made in his image and his likeness. So while we read about God's intentions here in Genesis 1, 26, surely this wasn't when the thought first occurred to God. God is simply revealing to us the promise of eternal life, which he made to himself before the world began, as we read about here in Titus chapter 1, verse 2. We also note again that that verse tells us that God cannot lie, something we usually think of in the context of God dealing with man, that we can believe his promises, that they're all true, because God cannot lie. However, since this statement is made in the context of a promise made before the world began, we should understand that it is also true that God cannot lie to himself, which in and of itself would be a ridiculous idea if it were not something that man does to himself all the time. We lie to ourselves all the time, but not so with God. Not only is it not within his nature and his characteristics and attributes, it is an utter impossibility for God who is three in one to lie to himself. Think about what that would mean for God to lie to himself, for the Father to lie to the Son, or the Son to the Holy Ghost, or the Holy Ghost to the Father. He is three in one. He cannot lie. 
not to any person, certainly, most certainly not to himself. To do so would be sin. Um, So when we consider the verses that are set before us here in John chapter 6, let's simply take them at face value and look at them, as the Lord says in Titus, as promises made before the world began, but we have now, quote, in due time, they've been made manifest to us as we read about them in the Bible this morning. In verse 35 of John chapter 6, and John and Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. To never hunger and to never thirst throughout all eternity means that you are forever satisfied in Christ. That means you'll ever be with Christ. You are ever satisfied with him. You would not be like the rich man that we read about last week in Luke chapter 16, um, who asked that uh, Abraham would send the uh, Lazarus back, that he would dip his finger in water and bring it to him. You would ever be satisfied. You would have no wants or no, or, uh, no needs anywhere at any point throughout eternity because you are completely satisfied and ever present with the Lord. In verse 37, we read, All that the Father giveth to me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. All those given to Christ and all that come to Christ will ever remain with Christ, who himself is eternal in nature, because he will not cast them out. They are his eternal possessions. As he is eternal, so are his possessions eternal. He will never cast them out. Down in verse 39, we read, And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again the last day. All that the Father gives to the Son will remain with the Son because he will lose none of them. And he will raise them up on the last day. Speaking of the bodily resurrection, every one of them, all of them, he will raise up. In verse 40, And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life. And I will raise him up at the last day. All that see the Son and believe on the Son have everlasting life. That means they will live forever. Christ will raise them up, again speaking of the bodily resurrection, on the last day. Verse 47. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. Very simply stated, if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you have everlasting life. I don't know how any other way to say that. You're going to live forever. If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you have everlasting life, period. Verse 51. I am the bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. If you eat the bread of Christ, you shall live forever. Verse 54. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Again, rephrasing things. If you eat the Lord's flesh and drink his blood, you have eternal life. And again, he will raise you up, your body, on the last day. Verse 58, this is that bread which came down from heaven, 
not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. Again, eat the bread of Christ and you will live forever, unlike their fathers, to whom the Jews have placed uh, such great faith in as though salvation were rooted in their genealogy. Christ says, no, if you eat the bread of Christ, you will live forever. Um, So the Lord has said here, in about as many ways as it could be said, that you can have eternal life through this process, by the Father giving you to the Son, by believing on the Son, by um, being in union with the Son, you have eternal life. And so they speak of this, this truth in a most straightforward way, and yet we complicate the issue. Simply stated, if you've been given eternal life, you have eternal life. It's as simple as that. Nothing can change it. If you could lose it, it wouldn't be eternal life. So just read the simple promises at face value. Now, in John chapter 10, the Lord sets this before us again in a most succinct way. In John chapter 10, verses 28 and 29. John chapter 10, verses 28 and 9. There we read, And I give unto them eternal life. Any questions about that? I give unto them eternal life. It's a gift that is given to God's people, and they shall never perish. All right, now we'll flip it the other way. You have eternal life, you will never perish. Neither shall any. Now note the, note the word man there has been added. It should just say, neither shall any pluck them out of my hand. Verse 29, my father which gave them me is greater than all, and no Skip, is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. It says man here as though um, another human can remove your uh, security of salvation. That is not, nothing, nothing can do that. None can pluck them out of my father's hand. So here again, Jesus affirms that eternal life is something that he gives people. To those he gives eternal life, to those to whom he gives eternal life, they shall never perish. Again, how could they? It's eternal life. None, he says, can pluck these out of his hand. Not Satan, not any angelic being, and most certainly not any man, including you. You cannot pluck yourself out of God's hand. There's nothing that you can do to get yourself into the grace of God, and there's nothing that you can do to take yourself out of the grace of God. It is independent of yourself. Everywhere it's been set forth this morning, it is a gift of God. You cannot pluck yourself out of God's hand. Jesus goes on to say that the people he gave eternal life to were those whom the Father gave him. And in like manner, there is none that can pluck them out of his Father's hand. And whereas Jesus says that there is none greater than the Father, Jesus himself will receive all those given to him by the Father Casting none out. That's something he shared with us back in John 6, 37. Now, that's another way of saying that Jesus will not pluck these people out of the Father's hand either. They're, they're of one mind, they're, they're, they're one, and so Christ himself won't do that. The ones that he receives, he does not cast out. He receives them, all that the Father gives him, and he gives unto them eternal life, raising them up at the last day. So the idea that someone can lose their salvation is antithetical to these simple promises in Scripture. Eternal salvation cannot be lost. Eternal life cannot be lost. If it could, it wouldn't be eternal life. 
Very simple verses set before us here. Now, it should go without saying, and we should appreciate that the doctrine of eternal security is the same as the doctrine of the preservation of the saints. Sometimes that's the way people understand it, is the preservation of saints. Both of these doctrines are rooted in the doctrine of election. All these doctrines are, are tied to a, are tied one to another. And the same is true with respect to false doctrines. False doctrines build on each other. Um, the first one's a lie, and then the second one just is a little bit uh, different from that, but it's built on the foundation of a lie. All of these are doctrines are truth, and each one is tied to each other. So the doctrine of eternal security, the preservation of the saints, it's all rooted in the doctrine of election. However, respecting the doctrine of the preservation of the saints, in 1 Peter chapter 1, the Lord sets it clearly before us here. It's who keeps who here? In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which, according to his abundant mercy, hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you. So the place you're going is preserved to, it's reserved for you. You don't need to worry about inflation. You don't need to worry about, um, you know, moth uh, eating it or, or corruption taking place or rusting it away. You don't need to worry about that. It's going to be there for you. It's reserved in heaven for you individually. Verse five, it says, speaking of these people who are kept by the power of God, through faith, unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So all Christians are kept or preserved by the power of God unto salvation, meaning when all things come to fruition in God's plan, overall plan of uh, salvation, you will be there in glory in an inheritance that he has reserved for you. Now, respecting the doctrine of election, we read in Ephesians, Chapter 1. I'll read the verses 3 through 6 in Ephesians. Respecting the doctrine of election, we go there now. We're going to look at Romans also, what our deacon read this morning. In Ephesians 1, chapter 3, uh, excuse me, chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen, chosen us in him, before the foundation of the world. That relates back to the promise we read in Titus. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, to what end he's going to tell us here? That we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. He's predestinated us to be his children. According to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Before the foundation of the world, God chose a people that he would adopt as his children. They would be accepted in Christ, and they would be beloved, and they would be holy. It's not an issue here as to what condition they're going to be in when they get there, as though uh, in glory the Lord will look down and go, well, my goodness here, I still see some sin in you. No, they're holy. And they're accepted and they're beloved in Christ. They are his adopted children. They've been predestinated towards that end. And they were elect in Christ from before the foundation of the world. Um, so from before the foundation of the world, certain people were predestined to glory. 
and no one gets lost in that process. All those chosen by God belong to God and shall ever be with God. They have eternal life. Now, though we may struggle with these truths in our experience of our Christian walk, from God's perspective, they are an accomplished fact. Let's take a look at Romans chapter 8, and we'll read verses 28 through 30. From God's perspective, it's an accomplished fact. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Verse 29. For whom he did foreknow, which means chosen before the foundation of the world, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, meaning they're going to be like Christ, that he, meaning Christ, might be the firstborn among many brethren. Verse 30, moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, past tense, and whom he called, past tense, them he also justified, past tense, and whom he justified, past tense, them he also glorified, past tense. From God's perspective, you are already glorified in Christ. It's as though it's an accomplished fact. Now, recall what God said to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 17. I'll read that. Genesis 17, verses 4 and 5. God is speaking to Abraham here, and he says, As for me, that would be God, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be, future tense, a father of many nations. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be called Abraham, for a father of many nations have I made thee. That's past tense. For a father of many nations have I made thee. This, this was said when Abraham had but one son, Ishmael, whom he was then to put out of his house. Now, the Lord helps us to appreciate what is saying here, and you have to love the details of God's language and the fact that he helps us appreciate what those details mean. Romans 4.17. In Romans 4.17, he's going to quote from this section here and tell us what it means. He says, As I have written, I have made thee a father of many nations. Before him whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead, and, quote, calleth those things which be not as though they were. It had not yet been accomplished, but in God's eyes, because Christ is a lamb slain from the foundation of the world, it was though as though it had already been accomplished. And that's the way God sees things. The same thing is true of all of the elect. God calls them glorified as though they were already in their glorified bodies in heaven with him. Nothing can keep you from getting from where you were, being foreknown of God and predestinated by God when he chose you in Christ, to where you are now in Christ and to where you will be with Christ in glory. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing. And all God's people said, Amen. Because I'm going to bring that up next week, Lord willing. <laughs> we'll see what we think about that. Um, nothing can separate you from the love of God. It is an accomplished fact with God. Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith, has said that he would, quote, never leave us nor forsake us. He would not leave nor forsake his people, and that he is with his people always, even unto the end of the world. 
if God will never leave you nor forsake you and is always with you, even unto the end of the world, then you, were, you are ever where he is. And he is in glory, and so you are in glory with him too. The Bible speaks of us as kings and priests in Christ. And so we both reign with him, and we are on this earth. So you will get the glory. You do have eternal life, and nothing can change that. Now, when you consider the trials of those that have gone before us, the Bible in uh, Hebrews chapter 11 speaks about the great cloud of witness that has gone before us. We consider the walk of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the Lord has recorded those things for our benefit, and he tells us us that very clearly in Romans 15.4. He says, whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning. That would be your and my learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. In other words, we might consider the walk of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and see where they struggled and see how we struggled and yet see how it turned out for them and the same shall be true for us, that we would have hope in Christ and not have hope in ourselves. And that's why God has set all of these things before us here. So think about the struggles of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their ultimate victory in Christ. Abraham, who is held up by the Jewish people as an icon of faith, we know how he dealt with his wife when they went down into Egypt. He threw her under the bus, and he said that it was his sister. What he did was for his own protection. The two of them had conspired ahead of time that he would do that when they went down to Egypt because he was afraid that he would be killed. He's supposed to be the icon of faith. He's been promised that in him all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, and yet he's afraid he's going to die. So what we see here is a man a man's lack of faith, uh, failing to trust the promises of God, and acting according to the flesh. Um, he certainly didn't love his wife as Christ loved the church. Later, at his wife's suggestion, he lies with the concubine Hagar, thinking he will help God fulfill the promise that was made in, in chapter 12 of Genesis, thinking that, he will be, uh, that this will help God bring he in whom all nations shall be blessed, meaning Christ. What was the fruit of the union with he and Hagar? It was Ishmael. Consider all of the grief, all of the murder, and all of the mayhem that that adulterous union has caused in the Middle East and indeed the world over. Before we started preaching this morning, I'd mentioned that we've been in the Mideast for the last 20 years because of what happened between Abraham and his wife Sarah and the concubine. Now, Consider the trouble that Isaac caused King Abimelech when he did as his father did, saying that his wife was his sister. That wasn't even an equivocation. At least Abraham was equivocating. Not so with Isaac. Think of the heartbreak and the division that Jacob caused his family when he purchased his brother's birthright and then deceived his father Isaac, stealing the blessing that his father would have conferred upon his firstborn son Esau. Are these men in glory? And do they have eternal life? Were they not subjects of God's promise? Jesus says they are in glory. In Matthew chapter 22, verses 31 through 32, we read, Jesus said, quote, But as touching the resurrection of the dead, have ye not read that which was spoken unto you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So here the Lord is affirming that whatsoever you might think of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob's Christian walk, they are recipients of God's gift of eternal life, and they are very much alive in the days when Jesus spoke, and they're still alive to this day because he is the God 
of the living, not the God of dead of the dead. Now think about Moses. Recall that he murdered a man and then he fled. Later, he disobeys God in the wilderness, failing to sanctify God in the bringing forth of the water from the rock at Meribah. Read about that in Numbers chapter 20. The result of which was that God prohibited him from leading his people into the promised land. And yet, in spite of these issues, we read about him in 1 Peter 1.5, that he is kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. In Matthew chapter 17.3, where do we find Moses? But we see him transfigured on the mount with Christ and Elijah, very much alive. Obviously, a recipient of God's promise of eternal life. Think of David's adultery and his murder and his deceit. Think of Solomon's adultery and idolatry. We read that the apostle Peter denied Christ, and yet he is not denied by Christ. The apostle Peter, excuse me, the apostle Paul persecuted the church of God and he wasted it. And yet we read he was separated from his mother's womb by God and called by his grace. The point here for us is not to compare our sin with their sins and think to ourselves, well, I've never done nothing, uh, something so grievous as they have. Therefore, if they make it, you know, I can make it. Remember when you did that in grammar school, you'd always look at the kid that got failing grades and you go, well, they got from the third grade to the fourth grade. I guess I will too. That's not the intent is to look at their sin and compare ourselves with ourselves because it is not wise to do so. But it's rather for us to reflect on the author and finisher of our faith who is Christ Jesus, who according to the promise of eternal life made within the Godhead has done all that is required to fulfill that promise, which we know to have been fulfilled in the lives of all the saints that have gone before us. And it shall be fulfilled for all of us too, to whom the promise applies. Now, the next thing I want to talk about is the assurance of salvation, the assurance of salvation. May we know that we have eternal life? And the answer, of course, is yes. However, this one is not quite so clear as the objective promises of eternal life given by God, which we've just covered. Because the question to you and me is, do these promises apply to me? And herein lies the problem of self-deception. Remember I said earlier that people do lie to themselves. Well, here's the problem. The problem here lies in one of self-deception. And that's why so many portions of the Bible, including the examples of the men I've just covered here, teach us about the depravity of man. So men will learn that they cannot ever look to themselves as either the means nor the agency by which nor through which eternal life might be gained. It is ever presented in the Bible as a gift of God given by the grace of God. And grace and works are set before us in the scriptures as things which are mutually exclusive of each other. And that principle of mutual exclusivity is set before us in Romans chapter 11. I'll read verses 5 and 6 of Romans chapter 11. Even so then, at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. This is in the context of a remnant of Jews within national Israel that are going to be the recipients of grace. The same thing is, applies to us here. It has to do with grace. And if it be by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. 
It is one or the other. It is never both. It is either grace or it is works. And God is telling us here that there is nothing that man can do to attain eternal life. And this something is set before, other than to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Man is incapable of working to obtain eternal life. And that truth is set before us throughout the scriptures. Typifying the spiritual condition of men, we read in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 6. From the sole of the foot, even unto the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. For they have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. That is typifying the spiritual condition of man. And why would it not be that way with man? Because we read in Job chapter 15, verse 16, that man drinketh iniquity like water. Man drinketh iniquity like water. In Isaiah 64, 6, we read, But we all are as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf, and all our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Um, Our deacon mentioned King David this morning and about how the Lord sent Nathan to him as a type of the Holy Spirit to reveal his sin to himself. Um, And he did pen Psalm 51, speaking about the Lord cleansing his heart, which the Lord, of course, did. He also penned Psalm 14, speaking again of the depravity of man. In Psalm 14, I'll read the first three verses. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. The Lord looketh down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. The Holy Ghost penned that, of course, through the, uh, David's hand. He also wrote Psalm 53. I'll read the first three verses there. Tell me what you think of these verses. The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. Corrupt are they. They have done abominable iniquity. There is none that doeth good. God looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. Every one of them has gone back. They are together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Um, It's almost identical. You know, it wasn't a mistake. Those are two separate psalms penned uh, by the Holy Ghost, given to us by the Holy Ghost. I think the Lord is trying to um, hit that nail twice, and I think he, uh, he has done uh, very well at that. He's helping us to appreciate the depravity of man and why that if a man has eternal life, he can only receive it as a gift. Now, yet because of man's pride and lack of understanding, he will look to himself and declare what he perceives to be his own goodness and think himself worthy of eternal life as though God were a debtor to him and owes him the reward of eternal life, which is ever set forth before the Bible as an unmerited gift of God. Now, while most of the world, by clear biblical definition, is on the wrong road to eternal life, they are overtly false religions, for they reject Christ both outwardly and inwardly. We know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, meaning one way, one truth, and one life even eternal life. The problem is, for those listening to my voice, is to perceive whether or not they have embraced Christ outwardly and yet rejected him inwardly, for this is the reality of, quote, many in the visible church. 
Though you praise me with your lips, your hearts be far from me. The Lord says that in the Old Testament of national Israel, and the same thing is true of the outward Christian church. They praise him outwardly with their mouths, but inwardly they don't love him. The Lord warns us and sets that truth before us in Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, we read, this is the Lord speaking, he says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. The Lord warns us here that there are many self-called Christians who know not Jesus. They don't have a relationship with him because he doesn't know them. They are looking to things that they have done, looking to their works, as though they did them by his authority in his name, when no such authority was granted because they have no relationship with Christ. He says, I never knew you. Not now, and most significantly, not in eternity past. For whom he did not foreknow, them did he not predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. He did not call them, he did not justify them, nor did he glorify them. He did not know them, and yet these people have called themselves, and as can be seen from the statements we read in Matthew 7, they seek to justify themselves, setting their works before God. They have deceived themselves into thinking they are right with God, do their works. A deception that makes them think that they have a relationship God founded upon something meritorious in themselves and not the exclusive work of God a deception that is consistent with the depravity of man, yet inconsistent with the revelation God gives of himself and man to man through the Holy Ghost, which bears witness of the loving relationship that we have between God and his elect. So again, I ask the question, can we know we have eternal life? And the answer again is yes. Let's look at 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. 1 John 5.13. The Lord tells us that we can know. In 1 John 5.13, we read, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. Who is he writing to? People that believe. That ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. So the Bible is written to believers for several reasons, and the Lord gives us one of those reasons right here, so that you may know that you have eternal life and that your faith in Christ is well-founded. It's where it ought to be and nowhere else. Now, in verses 11 and 12 of 1 John chapter 5, the verses preceding it, we read, and this, that would be the Bible, is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. And that we might believe on these things comes from the Holy Ghost, which God calls the witness, and our next verse, which precedes these ones. That's verse 10. In 1 John 5, 10, we read, He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness 
in himself. And that witness is the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit, or as it said in Galatians, it is the Spirit of his Son. Now, I'm going to read from Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, and this helps pull all of this stuff together because you have to appreciate where the witness comes from. Where does this assurance of salvation come from? It doesn't come from you looking to yourself what you've done or looking at the fruits of, um, of your labors. It comes from God. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoptions of sons. And because ye are sons, that's your position, you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. God has given his elect, which he calls uh, his sons, he's given them the Holy Ghost, one of the fruits of which would be that so that you would know that you are a child of God, that he is your loving father. In Romans chapter 8, verse 14 and 16, again, it tells us about receiving the Spirit. Romans 8, 14 through 16. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. They've received the Holy Ghost, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit itself bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. God has given you his spirit that it would um, um, testify to you that you are in fact his child. So again, we read that God has given us the Holy Ghost, who is God, that we might know that we are his beloved children, so that we might know that we have a loving relationship with him, and so that we might know that we have eternal life, an eternal relationship with the eternal living God, just like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all of the saints that have gone before us. So here in John chapter 6, in the Gospel of John, Jesus affirms in a variety of ways that the doctrine of eternal security or preservation of the saints lies in the work of the Godhead. As beneficiaries of the promise within the Godhead, we can know that we have eternal life and as such rest in Christ, fearing nothing, not Satan, not the world, not men, not even what you might do, fear nothing. So we might say, as the Lord says in 2 Thessalonians 2.13, but we are bound to give thank always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Amen. Amen.